0: this is the libertarian podcast from the hoover institution i'm your host tom church and i'm joined as always by the libertarian professor richard epstein here at hoover richard is the peter and kirsten bedford senior fellow he's the lawrence a Tisch professor of law over at nyu and he's also a senior lecturer at the university of chicago now today is thursday november 3rd and on monday richard we had some arguments uh two two cases on affirmative action one dealing with harvard um, and one dealing with the University of North Carolina. They're they're different schools. They're similar cases, but I'd like you to get into why we're hearing cases, I suppose, on on both those schools. University of North Carolina is public. Uh, Harvard is, of course, private, but receives some federal funding. And so, I guess, I uh, first of all, disentangle for me why why it's even possible to to bring a case against Harvard when you expect it to just be maybe maybe the, the public schools that get challenged.
1: Well, um, the case against the uh, University of North Carolina as a state institution rests on large measure on the equal protection clause. And the question when it says equal protection of the law, it means that you have to be colorblind in all its manifestation. And the action about Harvard is based upon the fact that since it receives federal funds, it has to agree not to discriminate on the basis of race. Uh, so that what happens, one of them is supposed to be a constitutional debate and the other is supposed to be a statutory debate. If you kind of read through some of the transcripts and so forth, uh, that really seems to fall to one side. And what you hear in both of these cases is a confusing jumble of arguments presented by all the lawyers as to whether or not you can execute a colorblind problem, whether you should execute a colorblind program of one form or another, uh, whether or not if you do, it's going to transform American society for the worse, or whether if you do, it's going to transform it to the better. It was a surprisingly open-ended discussion in which nobody sort of had a a knockdown. Down argument one way or another. The uh, one sense, it's a kind of a replay, oddly enough, of Roe v. Wade um, and the other situation in Dobbs, because those people who are defending affirmative action were doing it in large part on the fact that whatever we're doing today, we've done in some version for the last 40 or 50 years, and it would be a terrible mistake in the Supreme Court to knock out an institution on constitutional grounds, which has been around for a very, very long time in practical terms. And then on the other side comes the argument, similar to the one that one heard in Dobb, is that, well, if you've been doing this for a very long time, you've been getting everything wrong for a very long time. So far from treating this as a custom, you treat it as a question of continuous mistakes and and in intellectual blunders of the first order that you have to get rid of at the same time and you know you listen to all this stuff and you ask yourself is there any kind of an intermediate position that you can start to take and it turns out it's actually fairly difficult to do so One that was mentioned is the idea of what we'll do is we'll take people from the top 10% of their own individual high schools, knowing that we will get larger numbers of minority students because they will be concentrated in minority student schools. And that top percent is likely to be a largely African-American, for example. And so they'll get in. Whereas if you did it on the top 10% of a statewide situation, the weaker students coming from weaker schools are going to have weaker test scores and weaker grades in some sense. And so they won't get in. And, you know, my reaction to that, if you're making a self-conscious decision to adopt a system, which is intended to increase for various kinds of enrollments, that's all, probably also a violation of uh, Title IX, a violation of the Equal Protection Clause, as people start to see it. Uh, so if you really believe in the principle, you can't allow obvious gimmicks that are intended to circumvent this whole situation. So looking at the whole thing, Where do I begin? And what I'm going to say was begin with something which I don't think was sufficiently stressed in this case. Um, This is, you know, what were the gaps in the scores that took place between the students at the various institutions? And they turn out to be very large. Somebody will have exactly precise information about how much overlap there is. And I think it's precious little in both of these cases. And so then the issue turns out, well, if you know that these scores are enormously different, how come it turns out you can reverse this when it comes to admissions? And well, there are two ways to do it. You can say, well, look, you know, we think diversity is a good thing in its own. And so what we're going to do is plug it, and we think the social benefits of having a diverse student body are greater than those of not having it. Um, and you just learn to live with it and so forth. Or you can say, is what we're doing is we're looking at the non tangible factors that take place in the transcript. And somehow, the miraculously, the students who do badly on the grades and on the boards do very well on those things. I regard that as, as a sheer evasion in some form. I've done admissions work in many ways. In fact, I started my admissions work as early as 1969 when I was at the University of Southern California. And I can say, A, the board scores are in fact very widely apart then. They're getting a little closer now, but not much. Uh, but that the usual observation that you have is that it turns out the students with the strongest grade points and the strongest boards have the best record with respect to extracurricular activities and so forth. They're the ones who run all the clubs, they're the ones that active in student governments and so forth, so that the gaps don't narrow because of that, they increase. And so what's really going on in these particular cases is people announce they're looking at soft factors, Uh, then they put something down which is hard to disaffirm, and what they say is, well, we've now managed to make this thing up, and I I think that this is just not the way to do it. So let me just, before I take any other questions you have, um, sort of indicate the way this thing starts to work. There was a very telling argument early on in the Harvard case, which says we have, uh, say, We put our students into five ranking classes, and in the top group, we probably have three or 4,000 students, and the only number of people that we could take into Harvard uh, would be, say, 2,000 a year or 1,600 a year, whatever the number is. Well, obviously, you can't take all the people who are top tier. Well, then what do you wish to do with that group? I think the answer is what you start doing is looking for other things in order to get some kind of a balanced class. And even if you put race in that situation, it's not going to change things very much. But what Harvard said was a complete non sequitur. What they said is, oh, we have so many people in the top group, we can't take them all, so we might as well take people from the bottom groups. Well, you don't do that. Uh, The simplest way, I think, to solve this problem on a practical sense is you have your first cut. Figure out who is in your top group. And then within that group, frankly, if you want to use a little bit of affirmative action to read the resumes and the life stories and all the rest of that stuff, it's going to be fine with me. Why is that? Because you could never run the kinds of transformations that you do if you ignore what tier you're in and simply look at the subjective factors first and then assume that everything else really doesn't matter. And so, you know, Justice Kagan and Justice Sotomayor and Justice Jackson were all sitting and saying, you mean I can't read a resume of a kid who said it was very hard for me to get an education because I was born in a ghetto school and things didn't work well? Well, I think you should be able to take that into account, just as you're allowed to take into account a white kid who said, I was raised in a very poor school system in Appalachia and I had to come home after classes and couldn't do extracurricular activities because I had to work on the farm. So you take them all into account and then you let them do it. You don't want to be sitting there micromanaging individual decisions. What you want to do is to have some fairly powerful scissors which cuts off those things that ought not to be considered and that would be take the standard tranches that they use for white students or Asian students and use those same numbers with respect to everybody and then within that group uh, you can start to play around at the edges because I think it's impossible to say that you have to look at a resume and ignore the fact that uh, somehow or other on that resume there is some reference to color or national origin everybody's going to have that in their own stories what it was to be a Jewish immigrant coming to the United States and being raised in Queens in 2010 is the same kind of thing. So take it all into account and relax. If you have the first tier done correctly, uh, the subsequent stuff is not going to have the kinds of jarring abuses and real contrast that you start to see in the admissions pools as they're constituted today.
0: Richard, the the gaps in the test scores um, and uh, I guess some of the applications seem to be wider maybe at Harvard than at UNC. Do you think it's possible, just a quick one, is it possible for the court to come back and say Harvard got this wrong, but UNC is okay? Or do you think both, it, it's it's all or nothing?
1: And it's, you know, the judicial mind is capable of many things. First of all, we don't have <laughs> Kajanzi Jackson sitting on the Harvard case she recused herself. And so that makes it more likely that that's going to go down the tubes than the other case in which she's participated. I don't think that much. Yes, I do think that you can do this, but if you take the proposals that I said, what you do is you'd look at the North Carolina situation, figure out what their top tier is, and you would confidently predict, since it's a slightly weaker applicant pool, uh, that you would see more African-Americans in the top tier, and then you would probably get a higher admissions. And I think that that's probably the sensible compromise to use in this particular case, but I think it would be a mistake to use different formulas in the two institutions. It would then make things completely garbled. Uh, things are confused enough as it already is, and I think to the extent that we have both the Civil Rights Act and we have uh, Constitution, um, if we're going to play the game as they're going to play it, uh, what we have to do is basically use the same rules on both sides. And I can't think of much in the argument, anything in the argument, which turned on why it was. Everything here. Uh, was essentially a discussion if you have a prima facie color mind system is there any good reason why we should deviate from that to take into account individuals either because of past injustices uh, launched against the groups of which they're a part or because diversity is something that really matters and the diversity arguments get a stony look from people like Justice Thomas he says, I don't understand what this is all about Um, I want diversity of ideas and political views and all the rest of that stuff. And so if you're admitting a class into Harvard, which has 93% Democrats, 6% Socialists, and 1% Republican, uh, that doesn't strike me as very, very diverse. There's also other problems to take into account. If you look at the number of people who graduate within four years, which is a sort of standard situation, they're going to be very much lower from the affirmative action pool than they're going to be from the students who take them straight on boards and grades. Is this an argument in favor of diversity? No, I think it's an argument that cuts in the opposite direction, uh, because it means that we have weaker students in here who need greater help than others. And there's been the constant theme that if the kid who got into Harvard as an affirmative action program went to Penn State as an ordinary student, instead of having to run tutorials and special assistant program, the kid would be in the top third of his class and would do just fine coming out. And then that to answer Justice Kagan would mean having able students coming out from second tier institutions would in fact help fill America. uh, One of the things about Justice Kagan is, I mean, I think she's really too much a creature of Harvard and Princeton and the University of Chicago. And she says, well, the only people who make it in life turn out to be those who come out of the elite schools and so i want these kids in the elite school my own view having looked at the world for a very long time is that it may be that a higher percentage of students are going to come out of these schools and make a mark for themselves in one way or another but never look down at the kid from washburn who turns out to have a great deal of skills drive and the ability and who makes a mark in one or another kinds of field that stuff happens all the time I also going kind to of want to say it again, I spend a lot of time you know, teaching and having research assistants. In the last several years, I've noticed that my strongest students in many ways come from state schools or from small religious academies of one form or another, and they do very well at the University of Chicago Law School, and they're fabulous research assistants for me, which I do it. And so what's the difference? But the difference turns out to be some of these kids, me, I wouldn't go to Harvard. The dirty secret about Harvard is it gives you a lousy education. They don't teach you how to match verb and subject matters and so forth. And they don't spend their times on fundamentals. They spend all their time explaining how important you are. And the rap against Harvard has always been, it's the hardest thing about Harvard is getting in. But once you're there, everybody gets a gentleman's egg. So I, it just doesn't seem to me to square up that you have to be the lead institutions to make a great contributions in society. I think it turns out people coming from everywhere could do it. In my generation, I mean, we certainly have a lot of elites from Columbia College where I went. It was at that time a largely Jewish school, um, and it certainly isn't that today. But if you start to look in the world at large, um, some of these people falter, and kids from places that you would never dream to have that kind of excellence turn out to succeed. In the universities themselves, there is certainly a great deal of Ivy League taking care of Ivy League. But if you're trying to figure out who's running you know, various companies like Corning Glass or like General Electric, it's going to be people with engineering degrees from large state schools or stuff like that. And I think that we have to understand that there are many, many ways you can make a contribution into society with having gone to an elite institution.
0: Richard, I want to get back into the history of uh front action and, and racial preferences, because if we go back to just, uh, let's say, 2003, um, the Bollinger case, uh, then Justice Andrew Day O'Connor said, you know, we're not going to need these preferences in 25 years. And that was that was around 20 years ago or
1: so. That was, that was 2000.
0: 2003. So, Richard, is there is there a natural endpoint to this? Is there is there an off ramp?
1: Well, no. I mean, I read that, um, and I've also, you know been an admissions officers. And, and the gaps are very, very large. Uh, it's not even clear that they're narrowing, at least with professional schools. That is, if you're uh, an African-American kid and you're offered a very good job working to a business school where the uh, competition is not quite as intellectual and you get a position there, you may choose not to go to law school. And so there's nothing which says that you're going to keep the same percentage of people in law today as there were 50 years ago. And it's not at all clear that if you look at those numbers that they were making any movement from the situation as existed when the first affirmative action programs were put into place. Uh, They essentially arrived at the University of Southern California the same day that I did. Um, They came in big force in in the fall of 1968. Uh, So you just don't don't know. And you start looking at these numbers. I can't think that there was the slightest justification on the numbers for her to say that this particular proposition was going to be true. And if you look at the, the 19 years that follow, I think the gaps are pretty much the same as they've been. You wait another six years, they're going to be the same. Um, what The stronger argument that Justice O'Connor made at the time in terms of impact was not that prediction which had no basis whatsoever in fact, to either for the first 19 years or for the next five years or whatever it is, but what she said, and this is absolutely true, we talk to people in business and they're running a complicated business and they do regard diversity as being a strength with respect to the firms that they serve. And so she referred to in that particular case, a briefs by professors, not professors, uh, by Corporate moguls on the one hand, CEOs and so forth, and then military people saying, look, this is really extremely important to us. We're not doing this because we think it's a kind of a nice thing. We think it's the only way that we could reach our various constituencies." And she's got a point there. So just take a simple instance. You're running a police force and you have to keep things into control in various neighborhoods. Do you really think it's going to be a smart idea if you're running that police force to send all white officers and only white officers Officers into a black neighbor when there's a period neighborhood, when there's a period of racial unjust unrest, you'd be crazy. If you're walking about a domestic dispute. Do you think the only thing to do is to send two men in all the time or two women? Or do you actually think that it's probably better to have one man and one woman in this kind of thing uh, to control things? I can think of all sorts of operational reasons why it is in particular settings that race is going to be relevant. Um, And so to give you but another example, you're running a large nationwide retail operation. You're you're a brokerage house, and you're trying to sell houses and so forth. You know, uh, you're trying to pair people up, you're going to do better if you have a Polish person selling to a Polish person so they can speak in Polish. And it may well be that when you're dealing with your Black Hines, having an African-American realtor is going to be a little bit better as well. Uh, And what happens is I think the firms are much more able to make that judgment than is the government. So I'm now going to give you my own spiel about this, which is I think the whole inquiry as to how they run this is a pretty large mistake. If you're running a private business, my view is I do not like the anti discrimination laws to apply to competitive firms. And I think that these firms are perfectly able to figure out what their own internal composition should be if they're not threatened with some kind of anti discrimination action if they don't tote to some proportionate line. And what they do is they make their own internal judgments and they make trade-offs. And I think trade-offs are absolutely critical when you're trying to figure out how to put together a student body or a work for it. So I distinguish very sharply between two cases under the Equal Protection Court. Uh, there are the criminal cases where the word protection, stress underlined, refers to protection of the criminal law. And it turns out, it seems to me, you've got to have some kind of a strong colorblind situation. You cannot say that a black person who's attacked by a white person is going to see less of a sanction given against the white offender than anybody else. And you certainly don't want a black offender against a white person being subject to heavier sanction. So it makes perfectly good in the narrow context of the criminal law to say that the state in the enforcement of its particular values uh, basically treats all life as equally sacred when it does the criminal stuff but if you you do as you know and you do know that every private institution that has a little bit of wiggle room is going to engage in some kind of antics some kind of behavior uh, that recognizes the claims of diversity Uh, they're going to do it for reasons i may not agree with or that i do agree with. it's neither here nor there they may agree with justice thomas they may disagree with him but the brute truth about all of this stuff if you got rid of the anti-discrimination laws tomorrow there would still be affirmative action programs around the United States. The difference would be uh, the size and the extent of them would be quite different perhaps than what they are today. So when I wrote about this 20 odd years ago, uh, my position was, You would like uh, public institutions, when they're running their business side, not their criminal enforcement side, to have roughly the same degree of optionality in running an affirmative action program that well-run private institutions have. Uh, You don't want, in effect, to say that public institutions can't do anything if private institutions think that it's why. But at the same point, you don't want both of them to run riot, as often happens today, precisely because the pressure of the anti-discrimination laws puts you into this awkward position of to be complied, you have to have quotas or something like that, which sort of screws the whole system up in a very unfortunate way. So I'm looking at this debate, and I'm saying as a kind of an academic standing aside from the fray, I think they're all asking the wrong question. And one of the ways you could hint at that is you'll note during the argument, somebody said, but, you know, in 1866, everybody was talking about 40 acres and a mule. How could you possibly do that if you think the Equal Protection Clause applied? The reason they did it, of course, is they wanted to get people started on their feet after they'd been slaves for many, many years. It was wise said support. What you're doing here is you're trying to distribute benefits rather than to enforce criminal sanctions against people. And the instinct that they had, certainly in 1868, was that protection applied not so much to the distribution of public goodies, if it applied to that at all, but to the protection of people under the criminal system. I think that distinction still makes some sense today. And so I think what I would answer to Justice Roberts when he says the best way to get rid of discrimination is not to discriminate, is to say that's not what the ideal is. The ideal is to make public bodies function as responsible private bodies do. And if those bodies, for whatever reason, diversity, past wrongs, whatever, that there's some place for affirmative action within limits, uh, you want to give the same discretion to the public sector. In other words, to put it to you, I just don't think the anti-discrimination laws are the right model uh, for trying to run how a business goes, which I think uh, creates a kind of huge artificiality in this whole uh, kind of subject matter. And so I would want to reorient the thing, uh, but looking at this particular situation, there doesn't seem to be anybody in the public sphere who's prepared to take a distinction, which I think is absolutely critical to the way in which you run your institutions. Colorblindness with respect to criminal enforcement, some degree of um, discretion when you're talking about the distribution of public benefits. I think that's a healthier society than one we have, uh, but I don't think we're going to get there, and I don't think any of the justices, any of the nine justices actually thought hard about the question of whether or not the distinction that I'm mentioning here does or does not make sense.
0: You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Make sure to read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, published over at Defining Ideas on hoover.org. If you found our conversation thought-provoking, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Talk to you next time.